Hello, my beautiful beans. Welcome to episode 48. And this episode is going to be all about attachment theory, or it's also really well known as attachment styles as well. So I'm pretty excited. I'm going to try my best to pack all of this into one episode. We're going to see how we go. I guess I'm only going to find out (laughs) by the end of the episode if I manage to fit it all in because I don't really write scripts for this podcast. I just have dot points and then I expand on the dot points based on how much I want to talk about it or based on my knowledge around the subject and how in-depth I can go about it. So I never really know how long this episode is going to go for. So we'll see. Try and pack it into one. Maybe it's going to go into two episodes. Um, Before we do that, as usual, let's do a bit of an update on my week. The book got released, which is so exciting. Um, There were a lot of you guys that actually did the pre-order of the book. Thank you so much for your support. It's actually been insane how how well it's been received by you guys. And it's all you guys. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. For the people that have been messaging saying, where do you get it? If you are in Australia... You can get it, the website is Booktopia, or you can get it from any Dimmicks, um, Big W, Kmart, Target, I think, and then any like major kind of book retailer, the book should be there. If you are international, you should be able to get the book through a website called The Book Depository. They ship worldwide. Um, As far as I'm concerned, that's the only one that I know of because I don't think this book is being... stocked physically in stores outside of Australia as far as I'm concerned and I know it sounds weird that I don't know all of this but I'm just the writer of the book the people that have the rights to the book and the distribution is the publisher which is not me so there's a lot of this information that I'm not I'm not fully all over this information because I don't have um, that's not my job or responsibility over the book so it's been a massive learning curve it's very very exciting but it's been so so crazy there's been so many books sold I again because I don't see the back end of things I don't know how many exactly but I know that one of the online retailers has already sold out in it and they're restocking so it's it's been incredible and I can't thank you all enough and I hope you do enjoy the book and please write on the Facebook page what you think about the book or you can message me or whatever um, yeah so it's been a great week other than that just uni submitted one of my first major pieces of assessment. I had a smaller piece earlier. This is like my next major one and it's going to start getting like quite thick and heavy as the semester goes on. So nothing too thrilling or exciting there. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I kind of want to dive straight into this episode. I'm not going to go into specific brain facts, my, my you know, my specific brain hack or brain fact at the start of the episode only because there's going to be a lot of that intertwined within this episode. And I don't want to make it confusing because this episode is heavily about brain development as well. Attachment theory is yeah very heavily based on brain development. And I don't want to be like giving you a fact that's irrelevant. And then you kind of, when you're later remembering it, they might get like twisted up in your mind. So I'm going to keep it all relevant to the one topic. So let's get into it. You're going to see when people talk about attachment styles, That's very much, so basically what it's called is attachment theory. When you're looking at it from a psychiatrist, psychologist, neuroscience perspective, it's referred to as attachment theory, right? But then you might also hear it as attachment styles. Attachment styles is pretty much the same thing. It's just kind of the pop culture version of attachment theory. You see this in all these blog posts, magazines, you know, like um, those little online articles that like, do this quiz and find out what your attachment style is, that kind of shit. And they're named slightly differently to what actual attachment theory is. And I do want you to realize that the only one that we're actually talking about here is attachment theory. That's the legitimate one with scientific backing. Attachment style, they've changed the names a little bit. Um, 
which is weird. I don't know why they needed to do that. So you might see that when you go online, if you go to Google Images and you go attachment style images, there's going to be all these diagrams and so many of them are going to name them differently. So I'm going to break it down for you, cut through all that, you know, white noise and get to what I'm, what all that shit is referring to this right now. It's the actual original attachment theory and that's where everything that you see in popular media is based off what I'm about to talk about now and there's been decades and decades and decades of scientific research on this topic it's quite fascinating so when you're looking at the the google images of attachment styles you're going to see four categories and the most popular ones that you're going to see are going to be I had to do like a bit of a homework on myself and I had to like scroll through google to see which ones are the most popular ones in attachment style but you're going to see secure attachment dismissive avoidant anxious avoidant and fearful Okay, so they're not the names that we use in the scientific terms or like the research terms, um, but they are the four main categories that you're going to see because there's four main attachment styles, okay? So they're the ones that you're going to see often online, but I'm going to talk about the actual four categories that you need to know about and you just want to get get clear in your head. If, if you, for example, if you actually do want to go off and do your own like Google search and go a little bit more in depth on attachment style or attachment theory. Um, it's good to know what the four main ones are as far as research goes and then know which what are the equivalent ones when you see it in popular culture and whatever. So that way you can kind of get what it is that they're referring to. So the four categories in attachment theory are secure attachment, insecure slash avoidant attachment, insecure slash ambivalent attachment, and the last one is disorganized attachment. So they're those four kinds. I'm going to break them all down. Um, so notice there that they are different in name. So dis disorganized attachment is popularly known as fearful. It's quite different to that. It's that's really not the case. Um, insecure ambivalent is known as anxious avoidant. Insecure avoidant is known as dismissive avoidant. And then secure is known as secure. I don't really like these pop culture names because they don't really... They don't really explain what's going on and it makes it look like if you're an anxious avoidance um, attachment style, you're like, oh, well, that's not really me because I'm not anxious, I'm not this. So put aside everything you know, give me one hour or however long this goes for to explain attachment theory and then hopefully you're going to really wrap your head around this topic and understand a lot about yourself, a lot about your upbringing and a lot about how you interpret your own relationships and your relationship with yourself. It's very, very fascinating. So let's um, break down how attachment, firstly I'm going to talk about how attachment styles are created in the first place then I'm going to break down each category of attachment what happens through birth and childhood for you to get that attachment style and then how it impacts you in your life okay and I'll go through all the different four sections um, also another question that a lot of people ask is can you change your attachment style yes you can but you need to really acknowledge and know what your attachment style is and you need to have conscious action ideally through someone who knows what they're talking about, like a therapist or a psychiatrist who can actually, or psychologist who can actually coach you through and get you to understand why it is that you're feeling this way and what it is that you need to do to make those steps to turn it into a more secure attachment style. Um, so it is possible to change it, but if you're not aware of it, you're not, I think some people think that you can flip from like secure, insecure, secure. No, you've got your main attachment style and I'll talk about why that is the case. 
Right, so where does attachment style begin? Guys, this starts from birth, okay? Attachment is all about how the infant, the newborn baby, attaches to its primary caregiver, okay? Now, if you go into all these like old papers, they're going to refer to the mother a lot of the time. That's just because back in the day when a lot of the research was being done, the mother was the primary caregiver. But there is no evidence that shows that there's more importance with attachment to the mum or the dad. It's just the one that's closest to the child. And in many cases, both the parents play that role. But the most important thing that you need to think about is the primary caregiver's relationship with the infant forms your attachment style for the rest of your life, okay? That is how it comes about. If you have one parent that has really secure attachment towards the infant and another parent that's quite all over the place and insecure attachment and it's all terrible and it's all fucking all over the place confusing the child, which one is the child going to go to? Whoever is closest to the child. So for a child to have secure, healthy attachment style, it only needs one parent displaying it, but that parent has to be the one that's spending the most time with that child, okay? So think about it as you're going to model your belief system based on what you see most around you, okay? So hopefully that makes sense. Now, this all comes down to how supported and how much attention does this infant get? So if this child, every time it cries, the parent is there for it, or if this child, every time it runs off, trips over and grazes its knee and then gets up and looks back and the parent is there, that is going to be very different versus if a child is crying, 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 and the parent's not there, even if we're talking like a six-month-old, a seven-month-old, if it's crying, 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 the parent's never there. And then if you're at a park running around and you trip yourself, whatever, and you turn around and the parents kind of wandered off to do something else, that child is going to create a very different attachment style. And then you've got the other style altogether, or I mean, there's several styles, but then you've got another style altogether where then you're going from, you know, inconsistency with parenting to just downright abuse or full-on neglect and those are children that are maybe put up for adoption and go from foster home to foster home to foster home so they never have the time to create a true bond with a primary carer so they've got very inconsistent role models all the time there's no no one that's the same all the time Um, and then it also can be when a child is being full-on abused by their primary caregiver so they're gonna their interpretation of reality and the world and what they should expect from the world is going to be very different from that child who every time it cried its parent was there okay now I want you guys to realize that there is no such thing it is impossible to spoil a baby okay or or even like a very young child children don't understand the concept of manipulating their parents until they are you know a little bit we're talking maybe five or six years old I know that a lot of the time when you see children, it may seem that they are trying to manipulate their parent. But the only thing the child is doing is modeling the behavior that has worked for them to get what they need. Okay? That is all the child is doing. It's not saying, aha, if I do this, I'm going to manipulate and my parent's going to feel uncomfortable. You know, a child or a baby for that matter does not have the brain structure or the formations yet in the brain to form that level of executive thinking, okay? It's not possible for a child that young to form these thoughts and ideas, okay? So people that say, if you go to your baby every time it cries, you're going to create a monster, those people don't understand how the brain is developed. 
because it is not, you cannot create a monster with a newborn baby, okay? As far as spoiling it by giving it attention when it cries. A baby cries because it is, it is um, uncomfortable, upset, in pain or scared. That's, that's it. That's why it's crying. It's not crying because it's like, mm, I'm bored and I want attention and I'm just going to manipulate my parents so that way it comes to me all the time. That it's not possible because babies cannot form these thoughts at that age. Not possible, okay? Now, what then happens is this is all occurring at this young age of like you're starting to form the foundations of what's going on for the child and whatever. Then it happens in childhood, then teenagehood. Blah, blah, blah. The, the baby and then toddler and then child starts to form something called an internal working model. You have it. I have it. The whole world has an internal working model and that model, unless you've gone to therapy and gone and consciously changed it, that model reflects what you learn as a baby, okay, or as like a, an infant. And basically, it's this concept of I am X, the world is X, and I expect this from the world, okay? So, in other words, if you're someone who's, you know, always been wronged and whatever, you can say I am alone, you know, or no one understands me. The world is out to get me and people will never understand me or people will always abandon me. And, you know, so it's this kind of idea of what you think you are, what you think the world is. Is it a friendly place? Is it an evil place? Is it supportive or is it attacking you? And then it's what you think other people are going to do in general. People are always out to get me or people only ever think about themselves. So I'm always going to be abandoned or, you know, people are toxic and it's, you know, they're, they're always going to, when they get bored of me, they're going to just like get rid of me and go on to the next thing. Like everyone's got some sort of idea on how they're going to be treated by somebody else. If you right here are sitting here thinking, oh no, I've got, I always think like I'm supported. The world is a generally friendly place and people are in general nice. Then I can probably say that you've grown up with a secure attachment style. Okay. Now let's go into attachment styles first and as I'm going through them I'm going to be talking about development and the brain and what's going on because it's going to be easier if I can break down the categories I thought I could break it down what's going on in the brain and it's just beforehand but no so number one category we're going to talk about it's 55 to 65 percent of the population fits into secure attachment it's often also known as organized secure attachment but it's the same thing basically there's an organization everything kind of makes sense and you're very supported by your primary caregiver so basically this child learns that adults respond to them and that adults can be relied on this is where they start to learn that you can rely on somebody else and it is fine to ask for support and it is normal to ask for support they learn how to get responses from adults and because of that they learn how to communicate openly and properly, you know, without shutting down, without, you know, um, this manifesting in another behavior. They learn how to communicate by saying what they need. And then when someone communicates back to them, they're able to learn this kind of like back and forth of a conversation instead of, you know, it, it coming out in a screaming match or the child rebelling or something to get their point across. It's very much open communication. Then they begin to... When they feel really, really supported, what happens with that is then they start to it's, – it's, it's built into the human being to want adventure. And a parent that offers a secure attachment style will encourage this exploration t 
time when you're a toddler that the child will feel more and more comfortable to start to slowly separate themselves from the parents because they don't feel like they feel like there's a safety net and that net can start to get wider and wider and they can get further and further away from their parents because they know if I leave to explore I can come back and you're there for me. So then next time I go and explore, I think I can go a little bit further because I know you're there for me and then further and further and further. Another thing that the child learns is that if there's this consistent um, settling of the child or the infant, every time the child cries, if the parent always goes to settle it, the child learns to settle itself. So they begin to start to learn and internalize the controls necessary for like regulating their own emotion when they're upset or whatever because they base this off what the carer has done for them. So you're going to notice that with these children with secure attachment, after a little bit, after maybe a year, sometimes, you know, year and a half, whatever, that child, that baby can start to settle itself because it learns the tools on how the process goes. It starts after a year or two, it starts to put together when I feel this, this is what happens. But then I understand that a lot of this I can do myself. And if I can't, it's fine because my parents are going to be there for me anyway. And on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. Okay. So another thing that these children do is that they learn how to kind of elicit a response from somebody else. And that that response is going to be consistent. Okay. So they understand how to control their environment. So if they do something wrong or naughty, the parent is going to respond the same way every time. There's consistency. If they do the right, like a, a good thing, the parent's going to be happy. If they call for the parent, the parent's always going to come. If they say, oh, I'm in pain, they say that the parent's always going to care for them. So they understand how to get a response from their parent depending on what they do. Whether it's negative or positive, they understand that there's this simple process and it happens the same every time. So we all, all of us learn from communicating based on these experiences as a child. And I'm going to go, obviously you'll hear the other styles first, but this is the main one that I'm talking about first because it is a, the biggest one in the population and the easiest one to model of. And once you understand this one, because this is by far the healthiest version, then you can compare the other styles to secure attachment, okay? Or organized secure attachment. Now, as the child grows up, you start to create communication because a big thing about your development is how well you can communicate with other people. Everything comes down to communication. Look at all your relationships in your past. Everything comes down to communication. All your jobs, in interacting with people, friends, family. Okay, so if you have this healthy attachment, that parent starts like nodding, talking to you. Every time you speak, when you get older, it will speak back to you. It, you know, there's this constant back and forth and so that child learns how to ask for something. They learn how to say, I don't like this. I didn't like it when this. I And they, they start to really open up and be quite honest and they understand that they're always going to get a response back. So it becomes very easy for them to open up and to become really real with themselves, really real with the world and they understand, they start to learn everything and it all starts to unfold in a really natural, normal way, okay? It's not that they're never exposed to anything bad. That's not the case at all. Everyone can be exposed to bad things but as far as communication goes and feeling supported, that is always there for them. Now, this is where a lot of independence comes from. People that have that network growing up or that, you know, attachment style, they then very quickly learn how to support themselves. They learn how to calm themselves. They, it's this physiological process of like up and down emotional regulation and how they learn that based off what their caregiver has given them, okay? Another thing that's really important with 
this secure attachment is. It's not like, oh, in order to be a secure, a secure attachment style, my parent had to be perfect. They would have had to do everything that I just mentioned in this list. They would have had to blah, blah, blah. Not the case exactly. Parents can stuff up all the time. We're all humans. Sometimes, you know, the parent has three things going on or three children to attend to or even two or, or you know, they're cooking and then the child's crying and they don't have to. That's fine. It's okay for there to be moments when the parent wasn't there for the child on occasion, okay? Firstly, for a child to have an insecure attachment style or a disorganized attachment style, it has to be a pattern. It's not a one-off experience that causes that. It is a pattern. So firstly, if this parent that's normally secure attachment can't be there for their child this one time every so often, that's okay. It's, you're not going to damage the child. Another thing that you've got to think about is the key, number one most important thing is repair. So if there is an issue in the secure attachment, that parent has no problem then, whether it's in the moment or a little bit later, going up to the child and comforting the child saying, look, you know, I'm sorry I yelled. I should have said this. I'm hugging you now where the repair is happening. Or if it's a baby and they don't understand language, they then, once the baby's crying, whatever, they then go to the baby and not only physically comfort it, but they give eye contact as much as possible to the baby. They make the baby feel fully supported physically and whatever. So parents that understand, oh, I went too far there, or oh, I know that child was crying, but I was, you know, I was doing a million things. I couldn't get to it. They still innately, instinctively know that when they do have the opportunity, they're then going to go and try and, you know, um, settle or reason with the child okay so repair is key and it's not the end of the world if a few mistakes are made along the way because we're all human and I can't imagine any situation with parent and child where there hasn't been a few moments where you know you couldn't have done everything right or you couldn't have made the child feel supported 24 7 okay so it's not about that um and this is different I'm going to explain this a little bit later this is different from overbearing helicopter parenting it's extremely different to that because part of secure attachment is letting the child know that they are safe to go and explore so I'm not saying you've got to be on top of the child and blah, blah, blah. it's actually the opposite to that it's when the child asks for me when the child comes to me I am there for it which is very different to you being like, oh, don't do that, don't do that. Blah, 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 blah. That's instilling fear in the child. That's what then makes that child insecure, okay? So it's even though you're always there, you are allowing and encouraging this like exploration adventure. That way the child goes further and further and further until they're a teenager, fully ready to start spreading their wings into adulthood, okay? Basically, what you want to remember before I move on to the next um, the next attachment style you want to think that the the underlying theme is that the parent is always telling the child I am here and you are worth it no matter what every time so even if something goes wrong even if I let you down in that moment you know that all the time I am here and you are worth it because if I wasn't there for you just then I can sit down and have that repair with you and you're going to understand that there was a reason why whatever and the child isn't really affected by that. They might be a little bit frustrated, but they don't because it's just they've got enough of a concept. They've made that internal working model that people are there for them in general. And if they're not as a once-off, it's not going to crumble because they've got this strong foundation, okay? This is the basis for all kinds of intimate relationships in the future, okay? Open, 
direct communication. This is where they learn to say, I'm, out, I'm, I'm unhappy about this. I am happy about this. I don't like this. So that way your partner can say, oh, okay, cool. I'm glad you told me that. I can. This all stems from your childhood where you learn how to communicate with somebody because you feel supported enough to do so. If you are insecure, you're not going to feel that way. And there's going to be complications that arise in your relationships in the future. Okay. Now let's go on to the next one insecure attachment. Now, insecure attachment is kind of broken down into avoidant and ambivalent. So, let's talk about insecure avoidant attachment styles. This is 20 to 30% of the population. So, it's smaller. It's the second most common one that you're going to see. And basically, this is where there is inconsistencies with what the child is going to expect from their parent. Okay. Often, this occurs if the parent is not in tune with what the child um, wants. This is really, really common with a lot of people who have just been parented that way, so then that's how they parent, okay? Something that I really want you to think about when I'm talking about this, this has nothing to do with being like, ha, ah, I can now blame my parents for how they parented me. I can now this, because then then your parents can then blame their parents and, and it can go on and on and on. It's not about that. You have to understand that in most cases, unless the parent has been an abusive fuckwit. But in most cases, parents are just parenting the way that they know best, okay? So they're doing their best. And often it's because they are modeling what was done with them. So if you then take this information and think, I'm now going to blame my parents because I'm this, I'm that, I'm that, you are wasting your time and you're probably going to make the situation worse for yourself. This serves as a tool to realize, ah, okay, now that makes sense why I started behaving that way. Now that makes sense why I interpret people in this way when I could be interpreting it a different way. And now I have the tools to do something about it. Don't sit there and then turn the blame onto the parents, okay? That's not what this podcast is about because you'll get nowhere and you're going to be more upset instead of this being an empowering podcast for you, okay? If you want to have a conversation about this with your parents, of course you can, but it's still not going to change the past and it's not going to change your future unless you action some, something differently, okay? Anyway, let's get into this. So this is 20 to 30% of the population have avoidant insecure attachment. These parents will one day be fine with you doing something and the next day be blowing up about you doing something. They're the parents that would often let you cry it out for prolonged periods of time again and again and again and again and again and again. So this child is starting to feel like when I need someone, they're not there. So instead of secure attachment where the child is, I know that every time I need to be supported, I am supported. So now I feel more comfortable to branch out and do my own thing. This child feels, I now feel that when I need to be supported, I am not supported or it's inconsistent support so I can't rely on it. So now I need to take things into my own hands. And this is where you start to see when they become a child, you start to see rebellious behavior kind of unfold because they think, I need to be the one that takes the law into my own hands because I can't rely on you, I can't rely on the teacher, I can't rely on anyone because sometimes you're there but more often than not, you're not there for me. Or when you are there for me, you yell at me. So then I feel that I don't want to come to you next time because you've just yelled at me. So you're shutting me out. Yes, you are a good carer. Yes, you love me. There is affection. It's not an abusive relationship, but it's this inconsistency within the parenting and within the communication styles 
of this. There's not enough back and forth. There's not enough sit down, talk to me, open up to me. Why are you doing this? It's more like you've done that. I'm yelling at you. Go to your room. So then the child like tries to speak up and the parents like, no, you know, children should be seen and not heard. This old school parenting has created a lot of insecure attachments. This old school of like, you know, this uh, this concept that you should never have to apologize to a child. There's a hierarchy of um, of uh, ages. So, you know, respect your elders and this and that when that's all well and good if you want to live in the 50s. But in reality, if you want a healthy child, you have to teach them that it's fine to apologize, vice versa, the child to the parent and the parent to the child, that it's not unnatural for the parent to get down to the child's level and look them in the eyes and have a conversation with them. Parents that believe that that's wrong and bad parenting, you're spoiling the child, are at risk of creating some sort of an insecure attachment style where when the child then tries to express themselves when they've gotten in trouble and when they've done something wrong and the parent shuts them down, that child then learns as their internal working model, I cannot rely on you. That's basically what it learns. So instead of this idea where the parent, where that internal working is, I am, you are worth it and I'm here for you, this is kind of a bit more like you are worth it but I'm not always going to be here for you. So I love you and I show you the affection and attention. It's not abusive. I'm not abandoning you, but I'm teaching you that everything's inconsistent and you don't really know what to expect from me. So beware kind of thing. Okay. So that's where this insecurity comes into. Cause then when you look at future relationships, these are often the people that enter the relationship saying, you need to earn my trust. You know, I've been let down in the past. I've this, they've got their internal working model that people will let them down and it's every man for themselves and they've got to go and just protect themselves and do things for themselves. And when it comes to relationships, everyone gets fucked over. You know, I'm not surprised if you fuck me over because ha, I can't trust anybody, you know. So like I was talking about that internal working model, um, in this scenario, it would be kind of like others are maybe untrustworthy or inconsistent. The world is not a reliable place. I can't rely on it. So I must take things into my own hands and not rely on other people. That's kind of what their head is saying to them subconsciously about every situation in their life. And I was doing a lecture about the, I mean, I was in a lecture about this last week and our lecturer gave us a really good example of this to give you guys. So say you're a child with this you know, secure, insecure attachment style, this avoidant insecure, and you're running around at school and Tommy throws a ball at your head, okay? And then it really hurts you and you get up and you think Tommy threw that ball at my head deliberately. And then you go to the teacher and you say, Tommy threw that ball at my head deliberately and now I'm hurt. And the teacher says, no, 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 I saw it. It was an accident. He was trying to throw it to someone else. And, you know, so then your thing is not only have I been attacked by Tommy, now the teacher is against me and choosing to take Tommy's side. So instead of thinking like, oh, my God, was that an accident? Maybe I got hit in the head. Maybe I like ran into the course of a flying ball. You instantly think they've done this to me on purpose. I've been hurt on purpose. And now nobody believes me. Because in the past, every time you'd try and speak to your parent when you were having an argument, your parent would be like, no, no, not listening to you. You need to shut your mouth. So then they then bring that forward into the teachers against me, this, that. And then what happens then? 
If you start thinking that the teacher is against you, that your peers are against you, you then start misbehaving. You have all these externalized behaviors. You can't be settled easily. You're more angry towards this. And that, that's like quite kind of behavioral issues occur. We're not talking about serious, serious issues. I'm going to be talking that in disorganized attachment. But this is more like the rebel in the classroom that kind of doesn't really want to listen because they think, why should I respect you if you're not respecting me kind of thing. Okay, now the next one that we're going into is uh, ambivalent attachment style, also known as ambivalent coercive attachment style in some of the literature. So this is around 10 to 15% of people are going to be this style. Basically, this is the kind where the carer is a bit more responsive, but they're again quite inconsistent. So the interactions between the child and the parent can be really warm and close, like they have a close relationship, but then it can also be intrusive and over-attentive. And this is the helicopter parenting when, say, the child is, you know, secure attachment would be the child's there drawing, busy, and normally the parent will maybe come over once or trust being like, oh, that's a lovely drawing, that's really beautiful. So they interact a bit, whereas the overly attentive helicopter parenting would go over there and be like, oh, um, and try and help them with the drawing or try and put this crayon in the hand or try and – like you want to give them that creative freedom and stop asking them to show it to you every two seconds. Show me now, show me now. Oh, what are you doing now? Show me, what's that? Then the child feels that it's overbearing, right? Whereas secure attachment, they'll often try and wait for the child to come up and show the parent the work, being like, look what I just drew. Oh, amazing. And they might comment. They let the child have that freedom of, you know, doing their own thing and the child, when they want the parent to see it, will come over and show it, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so th this is this intrusive or overly attentive in everything that they do. They, they're like overbearing, um, and it's inconsistent. And at times it's really unsatisfying for both the child and the parent. So there's this, um, constant alternating between empathy and frustration, and then there's guilt and then there's blame. So there is a closeness. It is a loving relationship, but it is quite intense and inconsistent and the parent's overbearing and then the child gets frustrated and then the parent is too busy and doing something else, but because the child is so used to this overbearing caring, then they're like, I need you, I need you, I need you. And they ask you the same questions a million times. So it's this weird back and forth constantly. So they get, the child gets more attention the more fuss that the child makes. And they learned this because the parent was constantly making a fuss over the child about every little thing that they did, okay? So the, then if the child ever wants attention, instead of just asking for it, like, can you come and help me with this? Can you look at this? They make this huge fuss, like they throw attention for nothing. The parent then loses their temper. And then because they've lost the temper, the child gets sad or the whole household gets sad. And then the parent feels really guilty about this that the child then got sad because they lost their temper. So then they do the repair and then they hug the child. So it's not too serious and it's not that toxic, um, but it is extremely frustrating because everyone there is missing that kind of throw and catch of communication. There's always like a missed opportunity. You know, the child, when the child does want the attention, the parent's not there. Then when the child doesn't want the attention, the parent's too overbearing and then vice versa. And then the child gets frustrated then the parent explodes and then the child cries and then the parent. So it's a bit of like a drama queen situation, but it's not damaging to the child. So this is not a damaging thing because there is the attention and there is the love. And overall, the child does understand that they are loved, but 
the problem then arises that they become extremely needy. And then what happens when this child starts going to school, they are really needy with their teacher. They'll ask the same question a million times. They'll keep going up to the teacher and asking this. They'll hang around the teacher all the time because they need this constant, constant reassurance because there are inconsistencies in the household. And at first... The teacher is really like, feels sorry for this adorable child being like, oh, and you poor thing, oh. But because, and they think that they're helping the child, being like, oh, if I answer all your questions and if I make you feel this, if I make you feel that, then you're going to stop being so needy. But what happens is that the child doesn't stop being this needy because their home life is still inconsistent. So they're going to keep being needy at school. And then the teacher gets over it. They get annoyed at one point, not to the child's face, but then the teacher starts being like, oh, it's getting me nowhere. I need to kind of back off and not be so attentive to this child. I have to di- I have to like divide my attention to the whole class. So even though the teacher's not expressing annoyance or anger to the child, they've backed off. So now this child feels, oh my God, again, there's inconsistencies. They were so attentive at first and now they're backing off. Why? Why? So then they get needier and needier and needier. Okay. These are like these where the drama unfolds all the time. So... Again, it's not like damaging in the sense because the child does not feel abandoned, but they feel that there's insecurities and then you get all that crazy um, inability to regulate their own behavior, okay? Because they're quite emotional all the time and instead of being avoidant, they're going to cling to you because they need constant reassurance all the time that you're not going to abandon the next day. If you had the secure attachment, you would never need to be clingy because you know in your head your internal working model is I'm worth it and they're there for me and I'm chilled, okay? These kids are like, yeah, I know I'm worth it. I know they love me, but they're never there for me. Or when they are there for me, that's not when I want them. I just want to be doing my own thing. And then when I need them, they're stressed and angry and freaking out and me throwing a tantrum is scaring them. So then they get angry. So that causes this, you know, issue. And then that's where you get really needy people in relationships as old, when they're older. Always needing reassurance. Always checking up on their partner constantly. Um, not sure if they can trust them or not, no matter how much they love them. Even if it's a super loving relationship, there's a lot of insecurities that creep in all the time because there is no consistency. And instead of them being like, nah, I'm pushing you away, they're holding on to you, clinging on to you, being like, do not fucking, don't go to that party, don't go there, I want you here, I want you here. It's this like intense, like, I'm scared that you might leave me. So instead of being like, oh, I'm scared you're going to leave me, bye. Their version of it is, I'm scared you're going to leave me, so I'm going to cling to you and then ask for reassurance all the time, all the time, all the time. And then what happens? The relationship probably breaks down because it's not a fun relationship for the other person. And then that person's like, ha, I knew it. They did leave me. I knew they were going to leave me. And then again and again and again. So to wrap up that style of like insecure attachment, basically the attachment difficulties difficulties in teenagers with insecure attachment they feel fear of abandonment so they're always seeking connection they feel they get this negative behavior it's always attention seeking behavior they might often run away from their parents because when they run away then the parents are desperate looking for them and then they feel loved finally like they feel the attention when they actually want it Um, they might have tantrums they might be aggressive they don't trust authority figures um, and then they also feel, um, they kind of fear expressing their true, true emotions. So they'll be all like, oh, crying, this and that. But when it comes to what are you actually feeling? Tell me what you're feeling. They're scared to say what they truly feel because they're worried that you're not going to be there for them when they need you. And they've just opened up and we're vulnerable. And then you just walk away in that crucial moment. 
even though you might be there tomorrow or in a few hours, you weren't there for them in that crucial moment. So they're there not comfortable opening up and expressing their true emotions. They'd rather cry and make a fuss instead. Now, the last one that I want to talk about, and then I'm going to talk about the neural connections in the brain and what occurs with all of this, is disorganized attachment. So disorganized attachment is very common in children that have been abandoned or abused, okay? So this is pretty extreme um, and very necessary that if someone has gone through this disorganized attachment, it's I would highly, 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 highly recommend that they be in therapy for this because it's going to be very helpful to help them kind of come to terms with why they feel the way that they feel and why they're having all these issues in their life play out. So it's by far the most serious and unhealthy attachment style of all of them. It is around kind of 10 to 20% of the population will fit into the disorganized category. More, more Maybe the really serious ones will be around 10% of the population. Um Okay, so basically these guys, the people in, who are disorganized, attached, they don't have a strategy to manage their emotions. They have no strategy, okay? They don't avoid, they don't over-dramatize, and they also have no idea of how to settle themselves. They don't know what to do. So this can happen, this normally happens when the child is very stressed and then they feel rejected by both parents or by their primary caregiver. So it's just total rejection. It's not like the parent is there with them being like, oh, I'm stressed, now I'm stressed and now you're crying. No, it's like it's different to that. The parent will freak out being like, oh, you're crying and then they leave the room, you know, or the parents might be having a screaming match together and the child feels really, really scared that the parents are arguing. So the child's like, please stop arguing, please stop arguing. And then the, the one parent leaves the room and then the other parent's like, I can't do this, I can't do this, don't, you know. So the other parent's freaking out. The other one's left the room. This child is now terrified because they basically are looking at a parent who is either frightened or frightening and they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with that. So their behavior will probably be like they'll run away and then they'll come up and they'll try and like do, do they go and hug the parent and then they release the parent and then they go to the door where their dad ran out and then they come back and they, they don't know what to do. They're not avoiding but they don't want to get too close. They have no consistent behavior. They cry, they stand up, they freeze. They don't know what to do, okay? So like I said, this is a response to frightened or frightening parents. They see their parent being terrified and that terrifies them or their parent is exploding abusively whether it's physical or verbally at the child and they again obviously terrified because the the parent is frightening okay now this this scared child when a child is terrified or frightened if there's no solution like if the parent doesn't immediately be like well i'm so sorry for yelling at you come here i'll hug you i'm so sorry that was wrong comfort 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 repair 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 then that's a different story but fright without solution or repair will lead to disorganized attachment in that child okay Yes, like I said, it can be changed, but that child would have had to be going to therapy and the parenting style or parents altogether would have had to change, okay? Because if this continues throughout the child's life, they are going to create some sort of a disorganized attachment unless there's an intervention. This is also really common with parents that have experienced like severe loss, parents that have experienced trauma or have 
an addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs. So it's quite common, not always, but it is common with those populations, okay? Now, people with disorganized attachment are way more susceptible to mental health conditions, in particular, anxiety disorders, attention disorders, depression, chronic stress throughout their entire lives, and lower IQ. Because when you have chronic anxiety, especially throughout childhood and adolescence, attention disorders, depression, all of those things culminate into a lower IQ because you're not, you're not um, holding on to your memories properly, you're not forming memories properly, you're not paying attention the way that your peers are paying attention, you're not able to go through your schooling in a comfortable, healthy way like your peers. So your IQ is definitely going to suffer because of this. And then what does it mean for you in your relationships if you are somebody with disorganized attachment style? These people will accept abusive relationships in their life because they see abuse, this kind of relationship, even though it's abusive, they see it as love. They see this as this one day they're loving, one day they're screaming, one day they're hitting it. But that's how they love me. That's just how they show it. It's fine because that's just them. That's just how they show it. And it's way more ac- acceptable to these people because that's their internal working model of what a relationship should be. You can't look at somebody who's in an abusive relationship being like, oh my God, you're such an idiot for staying. That's not fair to think that about somebody who's in an abusive relationship when their model of what a relationship is, was ingrained in them as a child, as a baby, where they were exposed to abuse and neglect, okay? So they're now growing up thinking that that is normal. Or, if not normal, that it's common enough, right? Like, they're not thinking that every household is like that. They're aware that it's not. But they think, well, this is one of the forms of love and it's the love that I know because I've been raised like this, okay? So... They model all of that from their internal working model of the world and they stay in these relationships, okay? And then because they've had anxiety disorders, attention disorders, depression, lower IQ, chronic stress, this population is then more susceptible to then go into addictive pathways, addictive behaviors, and then they then have all these mental health problems. And then when they have children, it's likely... Not 100%, but it's way more likely that these people then repeat history again with their children, okay? And that's where it happens. So if these children were to look at their parents being abusive and whatever, chances are that they had something similar occur to them in their lifetime as well with their parents. And again, this is, this is more of a rule. This is kind of statistical rule. I'm not saying that it's like that for every situation. Obviously, there are, you know, exceptions to every rule. But in general, that is what's happening. You can have disorganized attachment if your parent hasn't been full-on abusive or neglectful, but that's rare. In general, you've had some sort of trauma in your lifetime. Another way to have disorganized attachment, again, is being through the foster care system because, you know, especially when you're going from house to house to house to house because it's very, very, very inconsistent and some parenting might be really you know, intense and abusive and controlling while other parents are really loving and whatever. The problem is as a foster parent, no matter how loving or kind you are, you can't change overnight that internal working model. So that child is still going to believe that no matter how kind you are, you're not going to be there for me. And chances are, if you're a foster parent, you're not there for them in the end because that child might then get sent back to their parents or removed and sent somewhere else, you know. So it's, 
it's very, very um, confronting for these children. It's quite an awful thing to go through. And then they start to then experience all these problems. Now, I've spoken about the four styles. What I want to quickly touch on is what happens in the brain. I'm not going to go too, too, too in depth about this because I'm going to be covering this in a stress podcast that's coming up on why stress occurs and how to deal with it and what to do about it. But basically what occurs is when you are a baby, all your neural pathways start to get connected. You've got all your neurons, but all the pathways are starting to connect. And I spoke about this whole neural pruning, whatever, like one or two episodes ago. So check that one out. But basically your brain is forming the like scaffolding right now where everything can get built on later on. Okay. So if you have secure attachment, what happens? You get all this development through the prefrontal cortex, which is executive thinking, forward planning, um, understanding that there's um, consequences to your actions. It's very socially aware part of the brain. It's the front part of the brain on the cortex, the outer layer, the, the newest part of the brain. And then everyone, the, the reptile brain, the middle brain, everyone develops the amygdala and that's emotion processing, in particular fear processing. Everyone does that. However, people that have secure attachment have a very, very strong connection between the, the amygdala, the fear processing, and their frontal cortex. The more connected those two areas are, the much easier it is to regulate your fear because your reasoning, which is in the cortex can tell the amygdala to calm down. There's this constant signal being sent, chill, relax, calm down, chill, chill, it's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, it's all good, it's all good, it's all good. So people with secure attachment have that really good connection. They're able to calm themselves down quite easily. They're able to tell themselves there's no fear here, everything's good. If you have um, insecure attachment, that connection's not as great. And if you have disorganized attachment, that connection is really really not great okay the less connected those two parts of the brain are the more the amygdala has power over you so you're going to respond to a situation as a fear response even when it doesn't call for that and not only that when you are in a state of stress or fear it's very difficult for you to then come down from that level and I'm not talking about I'm scared I'm going to cower but people who are avoidant dismissive they're going to also be like, okay, I'm scared. It's the fight. It's, the, you know, the fight or flight. So you don't have to run away, but it's this whole idea of like, all right, I need to get defensive. All right, I need to fight. All right, I need to. And this is where like you get like the rebel group in the school who like they're kind of misfits that, that kind of band together because they feel that the world is against them. And this is based on how their brains have been wired now, now that you understand the, the different ways, you know, where you can have like a full connection between prefrontal cortex and amygdala versus really poor connection. Now that you understand that, another thing to know, and I will go in depth about this on the next podcast, but another thing to realize is that the more active your amygdala is, especially over your prefrontal cortex and your reasoning, the more chances you have of having anxiety disorders, depression, low IQ, chronic stress, and attention disorders. So exactly what happened when I talk about the mental health conditions that people with disorganized attachment have, that is because their amygdala has been, you know, um, overactive and they weren't raised in a situation where they can increase that connection between the prefrontal cortex and their amygdala. So there's been sort of like a breakdown in that area. 
So there's the scientific brain reason why it is that people with disorganized attachment behave that way because their fear center is firing like crazy and they don't have enough connection for their prefrontal cortex to be like, look, it's fine. It's okay. Chill, chill, chill. They don't have that. So they're not going to chill and they don't feel okay. And then all these disorders start to manifest out of that. Okay. So there are the four attachment um, styles in attachment theory. Um, I highly recommend that you kind of Google, read, try and read as many scientific articles about that as possible um, just because they're going to be a lot more informative than a blog post. And a lot of blog posts, it's hard to know where that information is coming from because a lot of people will write a blog post and they've received that blog post and they actually got that information from like a magazine article and then blah, 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 and it's a bit all over the place. You also get people saying that you'll have one attachment style with this and another attachment style with that. Now you are going to understand how that's not possible because your attachment style creates your internal working model of the world. So you're not going to have a style with somebody where you're just copying abuse left, right and center, um, like bad abuse. And then you're going to have another relationship with somebody else where you're thinking like, oh, I'm so supported, I'm loved, whatever. People with a secure attachment style are not terrified to lose their partner. If their partner was to cheat on them or to leave them, don't get me wrong, they'll be heartbroken. They might be absolutely heartbroken, but they know that their internal working model of the world is I am supported, I am loved. So they think I'm so heartbroken, I'm going to go through this heartbreak, I'm going to pick myself back up and it's fine. I'm going to meet somebody else that I love and that person's going to be a good person. Insecure people will be way more terrified to lose this person because the world, their internal working model has shown them that is inconsistent. I don't really know what to expect. So I've got to cling to this person because if I lose this person, I'm terrified of being alone and, and will I even get someone like them again? That's their idea. And then somebody with a disorganized attachment style, when it comes to a relationship, their internal working model is abuse is their way of showing me love. This is okay. That's just how they are. I interpret this as love. And scarily enough, in a lot of cases, they sometimes seek out abusive behavior because that volatile up and down to them means true, deep love. Okay? Because that's what they know and they interpret that. If you're getting so passionate and aggressive and then so happy and so passionate and aggressive, then you must love me because you're so intense about the whole thing. So that is love. So they're not even thinking I'm gonna, we're going to leave, we're going to whatever. They're like, I'm going to stay with you even though you are abusing me because I know that this is love. Okay? So there's how the three or four styles manifest. Okay? I hope that was helpful for you guys. I really hope that you got something out of it. And if you feel that you're in one of those attachment styles where you're getting all these you know, problems kind of coming off the back of those styles, then you know, if possible, get therapy or try and for like a join kind of support groups for that. Um, specifically for that. I know that sometimes people try and get that support out of my Facebook page, but I don't want anyone to ever think that my Facebook page is a mental health support group. It is absolutely not that. Of course, I love that you guys feel supported, but I'm not going to make it something that it's not. I don't want to lead people on to feel that this is where to go to get that because that's not the case. And none of us can provide that genuine support that if you're in that situation that you need. If you need that, go to a legitimate support page where you have experts and other people that have gone through what you are going through who can help you out, okay? Unfortunately, my page is not that. Of course, you can share your experiences on my page. Love that. But that's, I, d- I don't want you to share all these experiences and then think you're going to get adequate and appropriate support, okay? Because that is probably not going to be the case. 
um, especially for a condition where you need an actual expert to guide you through that. Ideally, I would love you to go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I understand that that might be a financial thing as well. So seek out your resources and see where you can find people that have gone through what you're going through and can help you. Guys, I hope that was helpful. I hope that you found that useful. Thanks again for the support in buying the book. Again, the websites are the book depository or if it's international. No, sorry. Booktopia for Australia, if it's international, the book depository. And if you're in Australia, um, then all the major bookstores will have the book as well. Thank you so much. Keep sharing the podcast. You guys are doing amazing work helping me out. And thank you for all the engagement in the Facebook page. You guys are amazing, hilarious, very supportive, very funny. Love all your advice that you give to everyone about all the things going on in their life. It is awesome to read and it's so awesome to see. I do have an exciting thing coming up. It's a product that I'm working on and hopefully um, will be happening in the next few weeks. You know how I only ever talk about um, things when they're happening, but it kind of is, it's all like the wheels are in motion for this. So now I feel like I can kind of mention it without telling you exactly what it is, but I think that you'll be right up you guys alley because it's very much it's a product of the podcast. Anyway, so I'll be telling you a bit more about that in the coming weeks, but it'll be here soon. Um, can't wait to share that with you guys. Love you all so much. Remember, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.